Well, there was a past Sprite commercial that featured basketball great Grant Hill. And it showed Hill standing at center court. He's holding a Sprite. And as the camera focuses on him, you see him drinking this Sprite. And when he finishes it, suddenly the camera cuts to Hill playing basketball. He's just kind of on the court doing his thing. And he's making these amazing moves and dunking the ball. And, and suddenly, like a scene from an Old West uh, standoff, an opponent appears on the court. Now, it's not some other basketball great, but it's a short, pudgy little kid. But before you can write this kid off, you notice he's also holding a Sprite. And this kid chugs his Sprite, and he looks at Hill, and he says, you're in my world now. And they show a game going on between the two, and it is humiliating. Not for Hill, but for the kid. Hill's blocking his shots, he's, he's stealing the ball, he's raining down points. Uh, as the commercial cuts to the end, it shows the scoreboard, and Hill has over 100 points, and this kid has zero. And it shows this, this little boy sitting on the ground, staring at his empty Sprite, shaking his head like, what happened? And then it goes back to Hill, and he looks at you, and he says, if you're thirsty, drink Sprite. But if you want to win at basketball, practice. Now, that's an amazing uh, message because, as you know, most advertisers want us to believe that if you just buy our product, you don't need practice. Just buy our stuff, and it'll make you like the superstar we're featuring. That was the implied message in the old Michael Jordan commercials. You remember those? It would show Jordan, again, raining down these amazing dunks and going, and, and, the, and it kept shoot, cutting to his Air Jordan sneakers. And the whole time there's a jingle playing, I want to be like Mike, be like Mike. And again, the message was, you don't need practice, you just need our product. Well, as we look at Philippians chapter 3 today, what we're going to see is where Paul tells us, I want to be like Christ. But as Paul says he wants to be like Christ, he, he's going to tell us today, in order to get to that goal, he's not hoping for some instant fix, but he realizes it takes hard work. It takes work on his part. It takes practice. It takes living the Christian life. Now, as I say that, I want to make very clear this morning that we are not talking about working our way to God. We're not talking about salvation. If you were here last Sunday, you'll recall that what we saw very clearly, Paul left no shadow of a doubt. That salvation is by grace alone through faith. It was not based upon our works. What he's talking about today is not how we are saved, but instead how we are to live our life once we are saved. And he compares it to running a race. Paul wants us to think in terms of our life as crossing the finish line one day. Our earthly life will come to a close here on earth. We cross that finish line. And for those who are believers in Jesus Christ, then we enter heaven. And what Paul is saying today is that we should be striving to, to make progress toward perfection, toward what it means to look like Christ. That we shouldn't just be sitting around, but we should be striving to be all that God wants us to be. I invite you to turn in your Bible to Philippians chapter 3, where I want to begin reading in verse 8 to set the context. In Philippians 3, 8 through 14, Paul says this, More than that, I count all things to be lost in view of the surpassing value of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things, and count them but rubbish, so that I may gain Christ and may be found in him. So you see Paul saying, I'm in Christ, not based upon my works, but through the work of Christ. 
And now he says, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings, being conformed to his death, in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Not that I have already obtained it or have already become perfect, but I press on in order that I may lay hold of that for which I also was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I do not regard myself as having laid hold of it yet, but one thing I do, forgetting what lies behind and reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You know, one of the burning questions of life that people ask is, why are we here? What's my purpose in life? And Paul gives us the answer here. He says it is to know Jesus Christ as our Lord. As, as Paul talks about knowing Christ, he, he uses a Greek word, gnosko. Now, gnosko is, is a word that means to know by experience. There's a different Greek word, oida, that means to know intellectually, to have a knowledge of something. But gnosko means to have a, a knowledge that goes from your head to your heart, where you understand and receive Jesus Christ, that you have this experiential knowledge of who he is. God doesn't want us just to have a head knowledge. That's not enough. There has to be a heart change where we respond in faith to what we know about Jesus. If you were here last week, you'll recall that, that I illustrated what this means by taking a trip on an airplane. I said that we can know that we can drive up to the airport, that we can get on a plane, and it can take us from here to there. But knowing that does nothing for us if we don't act on that knowledge. You actually have to purchase a ticket and then step onto the airplane in order for it to take you from here to there. Simply knowing who Jesus is and what Jesus did when he died on the cross is not enough. The Bible is clear that we have to receive God's great gift. We have to confess that we are a sinner, believe in our heart that God raised him from the dead, and then we will be saved. As Paul is talking about knowing Christ here, he's talking about more than just knowing who Jesus is, but knowing him, having received him, having this, this uh, internal uh, relationship with Jesus Christ. As we saw last time in verse 9, Paul said, I have that I, may, I am found in him, not having a righteousness of my own derived from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteous, the righteousness which comes from God on the basis of faith. Here we see Paul's taking that step of faith because he says in verse 8, Jesus is my Lord. I've received him. Now, having come to, to faith in Christ, Paul's not content to simply sit around and wait for that day when God will take him home to heaven. What he says is now we need to take those next steps in our walk with God. And, and he pictures this as this race. You can picture running a race. And he says that uh, when the finish line is heaven, we're going to be made perfect. But what he says is we will not attain perfection until we get home to heaven. Now, Paul does not say that he's just going to sit around and that it's, it, he's just going to wait for that moment when, when Jesus will take him from here to there. What he does is he says, I'm going to run this race, and I'm calling on all of you who are Christians to run the race with me. Look at verse, uh, what he says in verse 15. He says, let us, let us, therefore, as many as are perfect, have this attitude. Now, when you see this word perfect, it's the Greek word teleos, 
And the word means perfect, whole, complete, mature. You see, what Paul is not telling us is those of you who are sinless, those of you who have arrived, those of you who never do anything wrong anymore in your life, what he's saying is those of you who are maturing in your walk with God, those of you who are growing in godliness, those of you who want to be more like Christ and are willing to take those steps in your walk. He says, for those of us who are mature and continuing to grow. You see, the the focus here is not on perfection as much as it is direction. Paul says, for those of us who are moving toward maturity, this is what he's calling us to do. You know, as you think of Christian maturity, one of the signs of Paul's maturity is his ability here to say, I haven't arrived yet. Paul, you'll recall, last time we saw in verses 4 through 6 was a spiritual superstar. His resume was the resume of resumes. This was a guy that if anybody could have said, I am righteous, if anybody has any hope, any shot at getting to God through being good enough, Paul said, I was it. But then he realized, I was counting everything up wrong. My works do not count from righteousness. So Paul says, I haven't arrived yet. How refreshing to find those people who are willing to say, you know, I'm not perfect. Have you ever met those people who are unwilling to admit their flaws? You know, I would if I had any, but no. (laughs) Don't write any notes, that's a joke. Paul says, none of us are there. But it should not keep any of us from trying to get there. If you're somebody who's hit a place where you've plateaued in your life, God doesn't say, "Just, just give up and sit there. What he says is, get up. And start to make progress toward perfection. If you're in a a place of spiritual stalemate in your life, we don't need to sit there or give up. God says there's a way to get up and start growing again. If you saw the movie Chariots of Fire, Chariots of Fire was was a story based on Harold Abram's life. This was the the Christian who won an Olympic gold medal. He He was this world class runner, a sprinter. But early on, as he was developing his skills and abilities, he was in a, in a race early on, and he had had a number of victories. But in this particular race, he lost. It was his first ever defeat. And at that point in his life, uh, the young Abrams was sitting on the bleachers pouting. And he was so mad, so upset, he said to his girlfriend at the time, if I can't win, I won't run. I quit. And, and his girlfriend very wisely said to him, if you don't run, you can't win. And the story, as we know, is he continued to run. He continued to work on, on what the gifts and abilities God had given him, and he won a gold medal in the 1924 Olympics. Paul was one who just told us, I know I can't reach perfection until I get to heaven. But that didn't mean that he went and found a place to sit in the bleachers and said, I'm not going to run. I'm just going to sit here and wait. I'm going to sit, soak, and sour until God calls me at that hour home. No, what he said is, I'm going to run. I have a goal of being more like Christ. He says, I want to lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. The meaning here is to seize or take possession of. What what Paul says is, Christ reached down and he grabbed a hold of me. Remember the the interaction Paul had on the road to Damascus? He was persecuting Christians. He was killing Christians. 
And it says that Christ appeared to him, the scripture tells us, on the road to Damascus, blinded him. Paul met the resurrected Jesus, and he came to faith in the true Messiah. Paul says, I was headed down a road to destruction, and then Christ laid hold of me. He grabbed me. He seized me. He saved me. And he says, I want to grab back, and I want to hold on to God. Friends, have you ever shaken hands with somebody who gives you one of those, you know, kind of limp handshakes? You ever had those cold fish handshakes? Doesn't that just make... You pull your hand away and you want to grab them and say, this is how you shake a hand, right? And, and this was Paul. What, what Paul says is, he, he says, there's no limp handshakes in the Christian life. He says, it's more one of those gladiator grabs, you know, where they grab a hold of you and you grab back and it's one of these kind of handshakes where you got these forearm on forearm, you're holding on to each other. He says, Christ grabbed a hold of me, and I'm going to grab back. Now, what, what he's saying is not that if I don't hold on to God, it, that God's going to let go of me. That once I come to faith, that somehow I can lose my salvation. The scripture is very clear that once we are saved, once we come to know Christ as our Savior, that we are his for all eternity. Jesus gives us this picture in John 10, 28 through 29. He says, and I give eternal life to them, and they shall never perish. And no one shall snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all, and no one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. What, what he says is, as we've been placed in the nail-scarred hand of Jesus Christ, he closes his hand around us. And then God the Father comes and he closes his hand around us. And he says, nothing. Nothing can snatch us away. Nothing can separate us from the love of God. Read Romans chapter 8 and the end there where it goes through this whole list of things and it says nothing can take us away. Once we come to faith in Christ, he grabs on to us and he says, I will never let you go. I paid too high a price for you. But what Paul says is, I'm not going to sit there safe in God's hand and lay there like a limp handshake. Instead, I'm going to grab God back. I'm going to pursue like a runner, pursuing the prize, and I'm going to run the race. As Paul pursues this goal, he knows that he needs God's help, something he knows he already has because you'll recall in Philippians 2.13, he told us, for it is God who is at work in you, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. Here in Philippians 3.10-11, he gives us this picture where we plug into that power source. He says, knowing, gnosko, remember that means experiencing his power. He says, experiencing the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his suffering, being conformed to his death in order that I may attain to the resurrection from the dead. Now, as Paul speaks of the amazing power of God, power that raised Jesus from the dead, we, we pass over that so often, it's just become, oh, yeah, he rose from the dead three days. This power of God raised the Son of God from the dead. And Paul says that same power is available to you and me. It's resident within us. And Paul says, I'm going to grab onto it. I'm going to plug into that power. And he says the, the hope of having this power is, is not just having the ultimate prize called eternal life. When we die, we get to go home to heaven. But he says that there is more that God does for us. In verses 10 through 11, he says, we too will be resurrected. You see that word resurrection. Now, in the text, there are two different words for resurrection that are used. In verse 10, there's the Greek word anastasin. 
And, and this word means a resurrection. It means a corpse, something that has died, is brought back to life. Now, Paul says that he hopes to experience the resurrection. He's not just speaking of the eternal resurrection, but then he uses a very unique word. This is the only time it's found in the entire New Testament. And it's ex anastasin. It literally means an out-resurrection. You attach the participle ek onto the front there. And what it means is a partial resurrection out from among other corpses. So you have all the dead... And what he says is those who are believers in Jesus Christ will be raised up out of the dead. This is a partial partial resurrection for those who are believers. You see, as a Christian, when we die physically, our physical life is over, but our eternal life begins. 2 Corinthians 5.8 says to be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. We have an eternal part of us called our soul. And at the moment our physical life is over, our soul goes into the presence of God. Now, there will be a later resurrection of our physical body. We don't float around as some disembodied spirit, uh, sailing a cloud around, plucking a harp for all eternity. That would be boring, friends. That is not heaven. Heaven is uh, responsibilities and rewards. There will be a resurrection of, of the, the new earth and the new heavens. We will return physically to this place. There are, there are all kinds of things. We don't have time to go into the totality of what it means today. But here, what Paul is saying is there is a time coming when we as believers are resurrected. If you read 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 17, it, it talks about how we who are Christians will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. You've heard of the rapture? I'm going to show you a slide here. And we're not going to go through all this slide today. Yeah, good, I heard. <laughs> but there's a sermon coming where we will. We have, this, we have this questions asked series. You guys have been submitting questions. And there's been a number of questions about the end times. How does it all work? How does it all come together? What's this? What's that? So we're going to be doing a sermon on, on what does all that mean? And we'll cover and we'll walk through this in depth. So today, what I want you to focus on, and believe it or not, I removed a bunch of stuff from this slide. <laughs> what, what I want you to focus on is just the top part there, where you see pre-tribulational rapture. The cross is when Jesus Christ died. And then that ushered in, after his resurrection, the period of, at Pentecost, the church was born, as we know it, the ecclesia, the called out ones, we as believers. And so the church age is where we are currently, but there is an event that is coming that will set off the tribulation and then into the millennium, that thousand-year period where we are physically here on the earth. But what will happen is something called the rapture. Now, the reason we call it rapture is the Latin word is rapturo. We get a lot of our, our words from Latin. Millennium is the, the word that means a thousand years. The Greek word is actually kylia that means a thousand that you find there in Revelation 20. So rapturo, the rapture, is where we are caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Now that is different than the second coming that you see later. In the second coming, Jesus will return again, but not just to the clouds. He physically will stand on the earth again. You read Zechariah 14, and it says his feet will be on the Mount of Olives, and it will be split in half. So at the rapture, he only comes to meet us in the air. Those who are believers who have perished, who have died, the out-resurrection will occur. Their physical bodies 
that have been in the ground, have been cremated, have been buried at sea, wherever they are, will be resurrected to meet their eternal souls, which are already with Christ. And we who are alive, if the rapture were to happen at this moment, everybody here who is a believer in Jesus Christ, it says that we will not perceive the dead in Christ. They will rise first, but instantaneously after, we will also be caught up. So our physical bodies would resurrect at this moment. That is the out-resurrection. Now, the reason it is the out-resurrection is the unbeliever doesn't have a resurrection at that point. You see that line running along the bottom, unbelievers of all ages? They don't have their resurrection until after the millennium, until after the final climactic battle. And at that point, as you read in Revelation 20, the great white throne judgment says that all of the dead will be raised. The earth and the heavens, everything will flee away, and all of the unbelievers will come and stand before God for judgment. But friends, it will not be a chance to get into heaven. The judgment there is because they have rejected Jesus. And their destination, having rejected the grace of God, is determined to be where God will send them to the lake of fire, what we call hell. And so as Paul is speaking here, he says, as believers, we will experience the out-resurrection. We will be taken to heaven. We will be made perfect. Now, none of us knows when that day is. And it doesn't really matter because what Paul tells us is we need to be living like each day is the day. He said, Paul says, I don't know when Christ is going to call me home, but here's what I'm committed to do. I'm going to be running the race at full speed. I'm going to be rounding that base and going for home at full speed, so to speak, if I can mix my metaphors here. So he says, as believers, we need to be running at full speed. We need to be moving toward that goal of godliness, that goal of perfection. And then we don't have to worry about all of this stuff. What he says is, as he he thinks about doing this, and as he calls us to live for Christ he, he, he says, how are you doing? He says, are you running the race? He said to earlier, let us, who are believers, let's pursue this goal. And if you're sitting here today and you're saying, you know, Roger, I really haven't been doing as good as I need to. Well, Paul says, let me help you. He puts on his coach's hat here like he's training an athlete. And he says in verse 13, I'm going to give you one fundamental skill that you can work on, which will help you take your game up to the next level, that will help you to also be able to do this. He says, here's the secret I've learned. It's to forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies ahead. There it is. Forget what lies behind and reach forward to what lies lies ahead. Now, you're already applying this in your life in different ways, maybe just not toward the Christian life. Let me ask you this. When you drove here this morning to church or the car you were riding in, did the driver uh, come to church in reverse the whole way? Did they put the car in reverse and and look in the rearview mirror and, and, and drive to church that way? Some of you are laughing like, who would do that? So why do we do that in the way we live our life? You see, what God says to us is quit living in reverse. Quit looking back all the time at where you've been, the mistakes you've made. He says what you need to do is put it in in drive and you need to look out the windshield and go forward. Forget what's behind. 
You've already passed those mile markers. You've already made those mistakes. Those are things that are behind you. And he says it's time to let those things go, to quit living in the past. You know, so many of us live in the past sometimes because we think, boy, those were the glory days. And you know what I've found as I've gotten old enough to start recounting the glory days with my own kids is we have selective memory, don't we? Those days were not always as good as we remember them being. We forget some of the stuff that we want to. But friends, even if those really were the pinnacle, the best that have ever been, you know what? You can't go back and relive those days. So what Paul says is, leave it behind and look forward. Paul tells us to forget those things and reach forward. Now, as he tells us to forget it here, he's not saying wipe your memory clean. It'd be great if we could all develop selective amnesia and wipe away all the things in our life, those, those hard things that have happened, the hurts that have happened to us, the burdens, the painful things, the mistakes. But Paul isn't saying that. You know, as you look at the life of Paul, what he writes about his life in the Scriptures, listen to 1 Timothy chapter 1, verses 12 through 16. Paul says, I thank Christ Jesus our Lord who has strengthened me because he considered me faithful, putting me into service, even though I was formerly a blasphemer and a persecutor and a violent aggressor. And yet I was shown mercy because I acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was more than abundant with the faith and love which are found in Christ Jesus. It is a trustworthy statement deserving full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners among whom I am foremost of all. And yet for this reason I found mercy in order that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might demonstrate his perfect patience as an example for those who would believe in him for eternal life. You see, Paul doesn't forget his past. He says, when I look back, man, it was bad. It was painful. I was wretched. He remembers that. But what he says is, I'm not living there. I'm moving past the past and I'm moving forward. I'm reaching for what Christ has given me that is ahead. He didn't let the past cripple him. He knew he was a new creation. Jesus' blood had washed away his sins. There were still scars from Paul's past. There were places he went where people still mentioned who he was. They were afraid of him. But what he said is, I'm leaving that behind. I'm not going to stay in this prison. He says, I'm forgetting these things. Now, he says he's going to uh, epilanthanomai, to forget or neglect. And you can just forget that big word right now. What, what that word means, as he tells us to forget, it literally means to let your don't let your past control you. You put it behind you and you look forward. Now, you see that word is also defined as neglect. Have you ever had a, a plant, you know, you had a garden and you were growing vegetables or things and the end of the season came and you quit going out there and, and weeding it and feeding it and watering it and doing all those things? What happened to the plant? Well, most of them die. Every now and then you'll find one, wow, it's still alive. But when you neglect it through benevolent neglect, it, it dies. And what the picture he gives to us is this is what we need to do with our past. Whether it's our mistakes or the painful things that have happened. He says, quit dwelling on them. Quit living in the past. You know what we often do is we spend all our time feeding those memories. Nurturing that hate or that anger toward the person who hurt us. 
We water those things. We let that root of bitterness grow and, and we cultivate it. And what he says is, brothers and sisters in Christ, let it go. Let it die. Don't keep living there. Don't keep looking back there. Get up and move on. He says as we neglect these things, as we focus on the future, as we look at the things, it will not let our past control us. In the ancient world, it was used of a, a runner who passed another runner in a race. And what he did, if you've ever been in a race, as you pass that opponent, you know, I, I ran cross country, and what you would do is you would see an opponent, and you would approach them, and your goal was always to get to them, and then you get up alongside them. And then as you pass them, you didn't, you didn't keep going, where is he? Is he just back there? If, if you've ever competed in something, you see swimmers, they're swimming, and, the, and they look over at the other lane to see where the other person is, and what happens? Their stroke gets messed up, they lose their rhythm, and then the other person. What he says is we need to quit looking back. We need to pass something, and we need to put it in the rearview mirror and then forget it. As you sit here today, there is nothing you can do to change the past, but you can change the influence of the past. There's nothing you can do to change the past, but you can change the influence of the past. I've shared with you before about my abusive relationship with my father. My dad was a wife and child abuser. I was kicked out of the house at the age of 16. And friends, what I determined early in my life is he may have stolen a part of my childhood, but I wasn't going to let him steal the rest of my life. And some of you here have been hurt greatly in the past by people. And what you've got to do today is say, they stole that portion of my life, but I'm not going to let them steal my joy. I'm not going to let them steal my future. I'm going to put it behind me, and I'm going to move beyond it. Yes, there are scars that will linger in your life. This isn't some easy forget it. And No, you, you, you don't forget it in that sense, but what you do is you quit allowing that to keep you in prison. It's there, it's a part. But you look forward to what God has for you in the future. Is there something you need to forget today? Your failures, your mistakes. Maybe it's the failure of others. You know, when we pray the Lord's Prayer, we say, Father, forgive us our trespasses as we forgive the trespasses of others. Do you mean that? Father, forgive me for my sins the way I'm forgiving so-and-so for the way they sinned against me. Are you holding on to something? Do you want God to hold on to your sins? Or do we say God has removed and released us and I'm going to remove and release that out of my life as well? In 1 John 1, 9, we're told if we confess our sins, God is faithful and righteous to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He removes it, the scripture says, as far as the east is from the west. What he does is he, he breaks, the, he cuts the cord, and he lets it go. And, and he lets go of those anchors that are holding us back, and we need to do the same thing. I love what Corey Tin Boom's father said about our sins. He said, God throws our sins into the deepest ocean, and he puts up a no fishing sign. They're never to be dredged up again. And friends, that's what we need to do with the pain of our past, the mistakes we've made. When we go to God and we confess them, God says, I've thrown them into the deepest ocean. There's a no fishing sign. They will never again surface. 
So why are we holding on to the things of the past that are hindering us in the way that we're running the race? We're trying to run this, this you know, race with hundreds of pounds of hurt on our back, and God says, drop the load and run. Move forward. To see what this can do in our life, read the story of Joseph in, in the book of Genesis. Have you ever read the story of Joseph? Joseph was one of the brothers, and you'll recall that uh, early on he kind of made some mistakes, and he was a little prideful and arrogant with his brothers, and they decided to get even, and so they sold Joseph into slavery. Some of them wanted to kill him, but uh, they ended up selling him into slavery. He gets carried away to Egypt, where he ends up as a servant in Potiphar's house, a, a high official in the court. God's hand of blessing is on Joseph. He's, he's a man of integrity and faithfulness. He rises to the, the level of the chief steward in the whole home. He's in charge of everything. And one day while Potiphar is gone, Potiphar's wife has been seeing this, this strapping young man, and she decides, she says, Joseph, come and lay with me. And, and Joseph says, I can't do this. You're, your husband, my master, has put everything in my control except you're his wife. I can't do that. That's adultery. That's against God. That's against my master. I won't do it. She gets so mad that this Hebrew slave would spurn her that she cries rape. She says, he tried to rape me. Joseph ends up being thrown in jail wrongly. And he's there in prison. You know the story. He goes through it. He interprets some dreams. These guys get out. They forget Joseph. He, again, he, he's going through all this hard stuff in his life. One day, though, God removes him from the prison, brings him into Pharaoh's court, raises him up to the point of the second in command of the entire nation of Israel. I'm sorry, the entire nation of Egypt. All the nations of the world were coming, including those from Israel. One day, his brothers who years before had done all this to him. They don't know it's Joseph. They're in front of him. They're bowing down. And, and Joseph could have said, this is it. Revenge. But you read in Genesis 45, and what does he say? When he reveals himself to his brothers, they all are shaking in their shoes. Joseph has every right to wipe us out. He says, brothers, forget it. God took the bad things. He used them for good. He put me here in order to be a blessing to the nations, including our family. Bring, go get our dad. Bring everybody here. He's raised me up so there would be food to preserve you and others through this time of famine. Joseph forgot what lay behind, and he looked to what was ahead. And he gives us a picture of what we can do in our own life. Yeah, there's a lot of hurt, a lot of things. He could have gotten back at Potiphar. He becomes second in command of the entire nation. He could have gone to this mid-level manager type and, you know, done something with him. But he wasn't a guy that was living in the rearview mirror saying, revenge, revenge, revenge. What he said is, I'm letting it go, and I'm looking forward to what God has for me. And this is what God calls on us. Paul says he was reaching forward. This word literally means stretching as in a race. The image that Paul uses is this. He says, as I'm living my life, as I'm running for that finish line, have you ever seen a, a race? Do they, do they come tiptoeing to the finish line? Do they come strolling over the finish line? No. They are in full out sprint. Some of them are falling literally over the finish line. They throw themselves over the line. Paul says, I'm going to be in a full out run. I'm not... You know, friends, I, I meet so many believers who, who are just kind of coasting through life. Well, I know I'm going to eventually get there. I don't know what God has for me. Friends, if you're not dead, you're not done. 
If you're still breathing, God has something for you. And he calls on us to be running the race, to be discovering how we can be used for him, how we can grow in our walk with him, and how we can affect others, how we can spur others on, how we can be running that race in a full-out sprint so that others are following after us. Paul says, I'm stretching. I'm reaching forward. We're not to be kicking back or trying to coast or looking back. As you look at your life, are you leaning forward right now or are you looking back? Are you hindered by the hurts of the past? Or are you willing to forget them, to leave them behind, and to look to the cross where Jesus says, I nailed all the sin of the world and all the hurt. Just leave it here today. I'll take care of it. Nail it to the cross. One day there was a little boy who fell out of his bed. And, and he woke up on the floor crying. And, and his mother came running in. Son, son, what happened? Little boy's on the floor. He said, Mommy, I stayed too close to where I got in. <laughs> he had rolled out of the bed because he was right on the edge. I see that with my own son. I have to go in at night and pick him up and move him back over and cover him up with the sheets. Or there'd be some of those, I stayed too close to where I got in. And for some of us as Christians, that's what we're doing. In, in, in our spiritual life, we're satisfied that our sins are forgiven, that our reservation in heaven has been confirmed, so we stay right where we got in. And what God says is, don't stay where you got in. Remember, justification, glorification is when we get home to heaven. Sanctification, as we've seen in this series, is how we live our life. What God says is, run the race. Move closer to the goal of glorification of, of Christ-likeness while you're still living. God doesn't want us to stay where we are, but to keep growing. Paul says in verse 14, I press on toward the goal of the prize, for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Again, you see the Greek games here in his mind as he, as he wrote of this prize. The winner of the race would be brought and put on, we, we see it today in our Olympics. The Greek games, you had this three-level stand. It's called the Bema Seat. It's the same word that we find in 2 Corinthians that describes the judgment seat for Christians. You see, the goal for believers is not just the goal of eternal life, but the way we live our life here on earth determines rewards and responsibilities that will come. And what Paul says is, I'm running the race, I'm pressing on toward that goal of the prize not just the prize of eternal life, but as 2 Corinthians 5.10 tells us, we are going to be judged for how we've lived our lives and there will be rewards. And Paul says, I want to be one who is running, going for the gold in my life. This is the second time Paul tells us he's pressing on. The word was also used to describe a hunter who eagerly pursued his prey. As you look at what you're pursuing in your life today, what is it? Is it a promotion, a bigger house, grades, or is it what God has for you? Friends, all those other things are not bad things, but they should not be the focus. They should not be what our eyes are on. The prize, Paul said, was it is the upward call of God, not upward mobility, upward promotion. On He said it is the goal of being like Jesus Christ, and that's what he was pursuing. If you've been running the rat race of the world, it's not too late to start running the right race. 
of knowing God and pursuing godliness. It starts by coming to faith in Jesus Christ, by saying to him, I am a sinner, I am far from you, God, and today I am turning from my sin into you, Jesus, to be the one who paid that penalty of death for me. And once we come to faith, we don't stay where we got in, brothers and sisters. We pursue the goal to lean forward, to run for what God has for us. Now, I know it can be tough. I know there are times that as we're running God's race, the world runs us over. I want you to remember, Paul was one who had been run over by a truck numerous times, and it kept backing up over him. He's in prison. He's facing a death sentence as he writes these words. But he's not wallowing in, in, in pity. But what he says is, even now, I'm pursuing God's great goal for me. Paul was one who looked forward rather than backwards. He didn't look around at his circumstances, but he looked ahead at the finish line of Christ. And because of that, he says, I have hope. And I'm running the race, and I'm calling on you to run it with me. As we think of this call to run the race, I want to end with this uh, article. It was called The Marathoner Who Finished Last. This is an actual report from a newspaper. It's titled The Marathoner Who Finished Last. It says it was 7 p.m. on the evening of October 20th, 1968, and there were a few thousand spectators still sitting in the Mexico City Stadium. The Olympics were being held there at the time, and this was an article about the marathon. It said it was cool and dark as the last of the marathon runners were carried off in exhaustion to first aid stations. More than an hour earlier, Mamo Waldi of Ethiopia had won the marathon, crossing the finish line, looking almost as fresh and strong as when he had began the grueling 26-mile, 385-yard event. His teammate, the legendary Abibi Bikia, winner of two previous Olympic marathons in Rome and Tokyo, had been forced to quit the race after 10 miles because of a broken bone in his leg. As the remaining spectators prepared to leave, those that were sitting near the marathon gate suddenly were aroused by the sound of sirens going off and policemen blowing their whistles. The people as they're walking out of the stadium were confused and they stopped and they turned to look toward the sounds that were coming to see what is going on. And it says, there entering the stadium came a lone figure wearing the colors of Tanzania. His name was John Stephen Ikwari. He was the last one to finish the race. His leg was bloodied and bandaged, and he grimaced with each step. He had severely injured his knee in a fall, but he had kept running, and now he painfully hobbled around the 400-meter track. Those that remained in the stadium rose to cheer as if they were receiving the winner. Akwari crossed the finish line and slowly limped off the field without even turning to the cheering crowd. The reporter writing this article came running up to him and, they, and he said, why didn't you quit? It's clear the task was so painful you had no hope of winning. The race was over. Why? Why did you keep running? Akwari simply said this, my country did not send me 7,000 miles away to start the race. They sent me 7,000 miles to finish it. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, God did not simply send us here to start the race. He didn't save us just to sit. We who know Jesus Christ have been called to be those who finish the race in a full sprint. 
living our lives for God. As I said earlier, if you're not dead, you're not done. God has given us a goal to pursue Christ-likeness, to run the race. If you're here today and you stopped running the race, it's not too late to get back on the track. It's not too late to get back in the game and start running again so that you can say, as Paul did in 2 Timothy 4, verses 7 and 8, I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, and not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Will you pray with me, please? Lord God, we thank you for reminding us of our purpose. Our purpose is to know you and to make you known, Jesus. And so we pray, Lord God, that you would help us. For all of us, Lord, who are hindered by our past, who have been chained to the mistakes of the past or even the present, would we be willing to let those go? Would we forget what lies behind? And would we reach forward? Would we press on to the goal that you've given us to be like you, Jesus? So, Lord Jesus, we pray that you would send us out now with a renewed heart and with a hope to reach the world with the good news of new life and the new start that we can have through you, Jesus. We pray this in the precious name of our Savior. Amen. If you're here today, friends, and you need somebody to pray with you, there are men and women here who will do that. Go in peace to love and serve the Lord.